On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Our lives just fade away to more wasted days. Hey, this is Steve Balton. Welcome to my turning point for what is one of the best episodes we've ever had. I am so beyond honored to share with you my incredible conversation with Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, songwriting Hall of Fame member, all-around legend John Mellencamp. What an incredible conversation on his new album, on his influences, the five people who would be in his fantasy poker game. Man, this was really special, so I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. Hello. Hey, John. How's it going today? Good. How about you? It's going well, dude. I'm very, very excited to speak again. It's been a couple years. Last time was for that Forbes piece, which was a lot of fun. So, where are you today, anyway? On top of the mountain. Nice. All right. Well, it's very windy. It's very windy up here, and very poor reception. Well, I appreciate you calling in on the Zoom. It's funny. I was telling Samantha that's why I was so insistent. For some reason, reception in my house sucks. And in fact, it literally hung up on Stevie Nicks, on Robbie Krieger. I was like, well, you know, this album is so good. I don't want to keep getting interrupted and it being like, oh, hey, so what'd you say? Sorry. Mm-hmm. So, but dude, this is a, this is a hell of an album in, in many, many respects. So congratulations on it. I think, you know, one of the reasons I love it so much, I was an English major at NYU and I feel like this album needs to be treated as literature. It's so thoughtful and so deep. I kind of was almost looking at it as, as a book. Well, that's the thing, you know, I am a, a dinosaur, as you well know, and people don't really make albums anymore. It's all about, you know, the single. But, you know, I'm old school, and, and, uh, and so, you know, I continue to do what I you know, have always done, and that's try to make uh, something that is all tied together and becomes one thing. Well, it's interesting. Were these songs written in a concentrated period of time? No. Uh, I started the record uh, before the pandemic, and then uh, I had a year uh, off, and then we went back in the studio. I mean, uh, and I, I wrote a few songs during the pandemic and, uh, so, you know, it took, it, you know, it, we, we were, we were in the studio that long, but just the, uh, the making of the record, uh, because of, uh, Corona is, uh, you know, it, it kind of was made in a choppy kind of way. No, what it was, it wasn't one one setting. See, but that's interesting because, like you say, it very much has a flow and a follow through to it. So when you go back then and look at it as a collected work, are you a little surprised by how much of a continuity there is? Given the fact, because like to me as the listener, it felt like it would have been written in. You know, obviously, I know this is very rare for now, but it almost feels like it was written in a burst because these songs are so tied together. Well, I think that uh, uh, I kind of looked at it uh, when I was putting it together as this is one guy speaking, you know, so uh, all the songs are really one guy speaking, you know, uh, as opposed to there's this song and that song and this song and that song. It's just one one guy talking about his, his life, his future, his self. That's really interesting to me because like I said, as a literature major, I approached it like a book. So, I mean, 
I guess my first sort of, well, this is obviously we've started, but I mean, my natural question is, who is the one-eyed Jack to you? Because he was a freaking fascinating character. Uh, you know, this is like my 26th album. And it's 26th, 27th, I don't know. Uh, I've been very fortunate, as you well know. I've been very lucky and, and you know, beat a lot of odds. I, I'm lucky because I think I'm lucky. Uh, but who's the character... You know, you can't write about yourself all the time, but I have grown to be a good observer and good listener. So uh, I hear what other people think and what people say. And uh, then plus I have, I'm open to uh, suggestion, which means that, you know, sometimes I'll be doing something and a voice in my head will go, well... You better write this down. And I think, ah, fuck, I'm painting. I don't want to write this down. No, no, you need to write this down, John. So, and that happened quite a bit with this record. It was like I'd be totally, you know, I didn't want to write uh, uh, Sweet uh, sweet Honey Brown. I think that's the name of the song. But that song just came to me and I, I had to write it down, you know. You know, why would I write a song about a heroin addict, about, about a drug-addicted person? You know, because that's what Sweet Honey Brown was. It was a drug. Oh, you know, and the guy always finds himself right there. You know, he's going to quit on you. But it sounds like it's about a girl, but it's not. About drug addiction. And, you know, so- in this country right in this country right now, there is plenty of drug addiction stories to listen to. Yeah, unfortunately, so true. But I mean, it's interesting then. I want to come, before we come back to that for a second, what what was sort of the impetus for writing all from the voice of One-Eyed Jack? Was there one song early on where you realized that this character was the narrator for this album? Yeah, I realized after a couple, three songs, uh, I, you know, I realized it was the same voice, the same, you know, it sounds silly and I'm sure you've heard it a thousand times, but it was the same messenger delivering these songs to me, you know, and I realized that this is uh, about a guy. This is one guy's story. And, uh, uh, and I felt that it was important, uh, um, to, uh, to make sure that uh, that this guy was represented properly, you know. So I'm so like curious something. again, coming because again I approach everything from the writing standpoint. You know, what were those first couple of songs where you started to realize that you know this messenger was speaking to you? Well, the first song on the record is a song called "I Always Lie to Strangers," and I thought, well. I don't really do that, but I guess maybe I do. I guess maybe everybody does, you know? Uh, and then I started, I looked it up, I did a little, you know, a little research. You know, the average person hears 300 or 400 lies a day and will tell 150 himself and not even know it. You know, because you turn the news on, you get lies. You turn advertising on, you get lies. You talk to people, they lie to you. You know, even as simple as, you know, how are you doing today? And I'm doing great. Well, they're not, but they say it anyway. So that's where that song, it was just that simple of a thought that, that led to, you know, uh, that song. And then, you know, people taking the high road. and Sometimes the high road, uh, leads nowhere, and sometimes it leads someplace, and sometimes the low road leads someplace, and sometimes it doesn't. And that's why the guy says in the song, "High, low, fuck, it's all the same to me." You know, whatever it takes for me to get to where I need to go. But then the whole song is tied up. Key to the whole fucking song is the line that goes. And this world is run by men much more crooked than me. So the guy's telling you that 
hey, I'm in no good nick and I do this or I do that. But the people who run our country, they're a lot worse fucking liars than I am. You know, there's a, there's a club, my friend, and we're not in it. Well, it's interesting because then it goes back to, you take that back to, and obviously, uh, you know, uh, honesty or lack thereof is a theme in this record. And then you go back to the end of the album with Lie to Me, where he talks about, you know, he's being used to being lied to. So, you know, clearly that was a, a theme for you as you went back and looked at this. Were there themes that emerged in the record that kind of, again, especially what's interesting is when you're writing from the perspective of someone else, when you're writing from the perspective of a character, were there themes that emerged that kind of surprised you? <clears throat> well, yeah, I'm all, I'm surprised a lot because like I said, a lot of times, you know, I, I didn't even know what I was writing about. I mean, it was just sent to me uh, and I, and, and, you know, you can't, uh, what I've learned is that you can't control the song. I used to, when I was a kid, I used to try to control the song. I'd write a verse and I'd go, Oh, I can't go there. But with this, you know, in the last, 10 years, I let the songs go where they want to go, not where I want them to go. And it's the same with my paintings. You know, uh, I may start out thinking I'm going to paint something, and I end up painting something similar to what I thought I was going to paint, but I ended up painting something totally different. And that is called creativity. <laughs> That's called art. Because if you're trying to, if, if, if I did a painting of you, you would go, that fucking don't look like me. And I would go, it's not supposed to. I didn't mean for it to look like you. It, it looks like you, it looks like the vibe that you give off, though. Yeah. Well, it's interesting then. Let's, let's go back for a second, if you don't mind. And it's fast, because what you're saying about how it's only in the last few years that you've learned to sort of let the song dictate to you are there older songs of yours then that you're surprised when you go back and revisit that because, again, you were at a point... Look, everybody just gets freaking smarter as you get older. I've talked about this with Neil, who you and I have talked about. I've talked about it with Carlos Santana many times. You just, you know, your instrument, whatever that is, whether it's writing, whether it's guitar, whether it's your voice, gets stronger as you get older as long as there's no injury or something like that. So, you know, because you are growing as a songwriter or learn that as a songwriter... Are there songs of yours that you can go back to and you're pleasantly surprised like, oh, wow. And it's funny, there's a specific song of yours that I became absolutely re-obsessed with during COVID. And I want to get your answer first and then I'll tell you which one it is because it's probably one that's going to surprise you. Uh, you know, right now, uh, they are remixing an album I, called, uh, I made called Scarecrow in like 85. And at the time, I didn't think much of it. Uh, I thought it was okay, and I had Ricky Lee Jones singing with me, and uh, I thought, well, yeah, it's okay. But now that it's been remixed and you can hear the lyrics, uh, I was surprised at that song. I was surprised at a song on that album called uh, Minutes to Memories. Uh which is a story about a young guy meeting an old man on the on a Greyhound bus, and the uh, what the old man imparted to the young guy. And then you know, there's other songs you know that I can't even you know I, I can't even remember all the songs that I've written. I, I really can't. Somebody else name a song, and I go, "Did I write that song?" And they'll go, "Yeah." And I'll go, what fucking album is that on? You know, so it, 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 it's all kind of just run together for me. But there were records that I thought were good that were very overlooked uh, for the time. Uh, you know, so, you know, it's not unusual. That's so funny to me. Is it interesting then for you or are you able to say, because I talk about this with people all the time. You know, obviously you say you thought Scarecrow was okay. It's funny, by the way. I mean, just so you know how far back I go with your music. And again, we've talked in the past. I was at the Scarecrow tour at the Forum in 85. So, been a fan for a very, very, <laughs> how very... How old are you? 52. Oh, great. 
<laughs> so yeah, I, and huge I, I fan. Care. But it's fun. And in fact, I love that you say that. Well, before I come on to this for a second, are you surprised then when you look back? Are you able to step back and see why it was that when you thought the record was okay? And let's be real about it too. Is there any artist in the history of the world who's not a perfectionist? Every artist feels they could do better. But with that in mind, when you look back and see how successful the record was, are you able to look at it with some you know, abject distance now and be like, all right, I get it. Now I can see why it was that people responded to this so much. Well, no, I'm not there yet. Um, I'm not there yet because I, I have a, a huge problem. Uh, one of my biggest problems is, is that I don't like to placate people. And, uh, I, I, you know, I'm not going to walk out and go, hey, welcome to the forum. I'm not going to do that. Never have. You know, I just don't, I, I just don't do that. So it's hard for me to understand why that record was more successful than, say, uh, I made a record called uh, um, Life, Death, Love, and Freedom, which I thought was really a good record, but nobody else seemed to care. I'm sorry, which record? I got like a beep for a second. Uh, Life, Death, Love, and Freedom. Yeah. I mean, there's so many interesting things in that and, and why that is and who the hell knows, but just go back for a second. I love the fact that you mentioned Ricky because that was the song. And in fact, we share a mutual friend, uh, John Sykes, who he and I were, uh, who, you know, he and I were just talking yesterday because I was telling him that I was interviewing you today and it's funny because we talked about that song over the break. For some reason, the song Between a Laugh and a Tear was just that song that I just became absolutely re-obsessed with. Wow, that's crazy. I mean, it's just a fucking yeah. great song. Well, wait till you hear it remixed. I okay. was shocked. Oh, it's so much better. So much better <laughs> I, because, you know, uh, you know... We didn't know what the fuck we were doing, you know, uh, when we made that record. But now, uh, in in the studio, uh, we're much better uh, technicians than we used to be, and you can actually hear shit. <laughs> you can actually hear Ricky singing. Before she was just kind of, you know, you could kind of hear, her, but now you can hear, her. and you can hear what I'm saying. You can hear what this, you know, what the vocalist is doing. You can hear the guitar parts. And it's it, uh, it it shocked me. It was like you know because I'm not involved because I don't you know I I can't go backwards. I you know it's like you know they're doing this for the record company and it's like okay if you guys want to do it you want to spend the money go ahead. I don't, but for me I made that record a long time ago. So uh, you know a couple guys in my band and my engineer are remixing it and they send me you know copies of what they do each day and I approve them. But I, I never go back. I can't. I can't go back and work on Scarecrow again. I already did that record. Yeah. No. I mean, I think most artists feel that way, and it's very common. But it's interesting because one thing I found doing so many interviews during COVID is artists who were typically on an album tour cycle, they did find opportunity to go back because it was the first sort of time they had to have downtime to look at it. So it's interesting and we'll come back onto this album in a second because it's so wonderful and you know but were there are there stuff of yours then that you you know with the time that you had to look back on you're like like you mentioned life death love freedom stuff like that that you are like okay maybe more recent stuff that you you know I, I, I don't understand it? I I don't I, I you know I hardly ever listen to my own records I mean uh, when they're done, they're done. Uh, I I never, you know, if I hear a song on the radio, then I'll listen to that, you know. But do I ever, like, play my records? Very rarely. Now, the guys in my band do. And they'll come up to me and they go, John, you need to listen to fucking the album Human Wheels. It was fucking great. And I go, ah, I don't remember being so great. I remember being a bunch of hard work. And, uh, so, you know, I never go back and listen to the records. I, I just, I find it kind of painful, to be honest. Like I said, I think that's most artists, and that's a very normal response. And in fact, after doing thousands of interviews, I actually did come up with a joke. How do you tell the narcissistic sociopath musician? 
they listen. They admit to listening to their own music. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't do that. It, it, it sometimes it makes me feel uh, queasy. No. That's why it's so uh, fascinating, as I say, to be able to go back to, look, I just did this book project, actually, which was fascinating. And, and why I mentioned it, I interviewed Linda Ronstadt for it. Linda, obviously, is amazing. She's had an incredible career. I'm not kidding you. She told me there were four or five moments in her entire whole career where she could handle listening, like where she was happy with her vocals. Uh, see, I never care about my vocals. I, you know, I, 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 I'm one of the few guys you're going to interview that's like, okay, you guys, you got, you got three takes and whatever you got, that's what it's going to be. I never, I never <clears throat> tried to polish or do anything to my vocals. And, and, uh, I, I just, I just didn't, you know, I didn't really, matter of fact, I can remember telling the engineers turned my fucking vocals down back, you know, back in like 1985. They're too fucking loud. The band has got to surround the vocal. Now I don't feel that way. You know, now with the new record, my vocals are right up front. Um, but back then it was like, you know, just kind of burying me in the mix. You know, that's the way Bob did it. That's the way Woody did it, you know. So that's what we're doing. I used to tell the engineer, look, as long as you can hear my vocals, the tambourine, and the bass, we're in business. I don't care about the rest of it. <laughs> well, I was going to say that makes sense, though, because I think my guess would be you think of yourself as a writer first, whereas Linda was predominantly a vocalist. So that makes sense. And right. it also it ties in, though, with the fact that you say you never wanted to polish. Look, one of the things that's so fucking great about this album is the sort of rawness of it. And I mean, it's like, it, it's it's funny because I was fortunate to interview Daniel Lanois multiple times who, you know, and I feel like there are moments sonically that do remind me a little bit of Time Out of Mind. And he talked to me a great deal about working with Bob, who I know you're friends with and is a big fan of yours. But, you know, I mean, I, I love that sort of, you know, what Daniel called the happy accidents. And it's, I think that for an album like this, it needs to have that rawness. You know, so were there moments sonically on here? I asked you about the lyrics, but sonically that really like either stood out to you or surprised you, or even when you think about, you know, bringing this album to the stage later in 2022, that you're really excited to see how they come out. Well, um, I, you know, I, I just think that, you know, the older you get, you know, you, it's like anything. How do you get good at something? You just keep doing it. And most people quit too early. You know, that's what I've found. Most people give up too early. Do you know what courage is? Courage is knowing you're fucking beat before you even start, but you start anyway and you see it to the, to the end, no matter what the result. And that is courage. And that's what we did on this record. Interesting. Well, you mentioned that. It's funny. Well, uh, okay, I'm going to tell you, uh, we're going to wrap up in a minute because I don't know how we're doing on time. And But I mean, dude, like it's funny. Sonically, I freaking love both Gone So Soon and A Life Full of Rain. Dude, that elegy, like those songs that have that sort of elegy feel, just absolutely so elegant, but so haunting. So I'm curious, like if those are ones that either stood out to you or just, you know, because again, they stand out so distinctly. Like, I love that one, two, three in the middle of Did You Say Such a Thing, which has that sort of bluesy feel, just that hauntingness of Gone So Soon, and then to the more upbeat, jangly, Wasted Days. Well, uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, but I, all I can say to that is, is that, um, you know, and uh, never let it be said that I would quote Daniel Lenoir, but it just, uh, that's just the way it worked out. You know, we, you can't, you know, I learned uh, 10, 15 years ago, you can't control art. True art is when you let the art go where it wants to go. If I step up to a canvas, I have a problem. If I sit down in the studio getting ready to mix a record, I have a problem. 
if I pick up a guitar and a piece of paper, I have a problem. And that problem is try to, to make the most beautiful thing I can make, even if it's grotesquely beautiful. Uh, and how, how do you solve that problem? And that's not by going, ah, that's good enough. No, never good enough. It's never going to be good enough. Good songs, good paintings, good records are never done. They're only abandoned. See, that's so fascinating to me, though, because, again, and I get that, having talked to so many artists, like I say, every artist is a perfectionist, and I always use the analogy, right? If Coltrane thought a Love Supreme was good enough, then what the fuck does he have left to do? There's nothing left for him to do. But what I do find from talking to so many artists is you hit upon moments that sort of become building blocks that you become excited by, and you feel like this is where I want to go to next. And so are there moments, then, on one Eye Jack, where you feel like you're getting close. And it's interesting because obviously you've had such an iconic career and you've had so much success and written so many great songs. But as we're talking about, the artist is never satisfied, you know, and you're always looking to expand and grow. So are there sort of building block moments that you hear on one Eye Jack that you're like, okay, this is who I want, you know, to be as an artist and I'm getting closer? I don't have thoughts like that. Um, I, I never, I never have thoughts like that I, because uh, I never cared about my image. You know, uh, I can't control what people say about me, and I think it's a mistake to try to create an image. I mean, I, I can't. I'm not going to name anybody personally, but I see guys my age trying to hang on to what they were doing 30 years ago, and they just look silly. You know, they, they just look silly to me. It's like, hey, man, you know, you realize you're fucking 70 years old now? You can't be doing what you did when you were 31. You know? So, grow up a little bit, you know, and I, and, and so that's what I try. I try to remind myself of that. You know, I did a song with Bruce on the record called uh, Did You Say Such a Thing? And I almost didn't put it on the record because I thought it was too... Juvenile, you know, I thought, ah, that's a little juvenile, but, you know, Bruce said he didn't think it was, so we talked about it. Well, now that's an interesting thing as well, and it's funny because I mentioned going back all the way to uh, Between a Laugh and a Tear, and, you know, with this record, which <laughs> I love the fact, by the way, too, coming back to the original point of conversation, the fact that it's a character and what's cool about it is the fact that it has this sort of, um, what's the, you know, it feels like it's so intimate, but the stuff that you were talking about is on a much more global scale. But I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, talk about what you were looking for in working with Bruce on the record. And obviously you guys have parallel things, you know, in, in age and in the evolution of sort of, you know, being comfortable growing older and doing it musically. But I'm really curious you know, like what sort of made, what I'm trying to say, sorry, this is my first interview of the year, you know, so I'm a little brain dead, I'm not going to lie, but I was very excited for this. But what I'm trying to say is for you, you know, like what made him the right person to work with on this record or the right time? Well, I'll tell you, it, it was quite uh, by accident. Um, you know, for my entire career, uh, and uh, I was always like, you know, the poor man's Bruce Springsteen. And Bruce and I had an opportunity, and we've known each other for years. I mean, you know, for years. We met each other years ago. But we just knew each other enough to say hi. Uh, but we did a rainforest thing for Sting, and we played together. And... All of a sudden, he was like my big brother, and he treated me like I was his sibling, and I treated him like with respect, and then we became really good friends, and and uh, uh, it just kind of happened. He came to Indiana, he stayed at the house. It was it was great. I mean, and I talk to Bruce all the time now. You know, I know what he's doing right now. He knows where I'm at, so it's good been a good thing. All right. Well, it's interesting then, you know, besides him, I'm curious if there are other 
artists that that you look at, you admire for their sort of evolution. And, you know, again, you say you're not going to name anybody by name, and I appreciate that. I always want to focus on the positive. So are there artists that you've looked at over the years that you admire for the way that they've been able to gracefully evolve in their music? Well, I'll name those artists. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I, you know, I admire Bob. I admire Bob. Um, and I admire Bruce. Uh, and uh, I admire Woody Guthrie, and uh, I admire uh, Nat King Cole. Uh, I admire Louis Armstrong. Um, I was, you know, uh, I, we were laughing in when we were making this record. It was like, you know, John, your voice has changed so much since you started. Uh, and I said, well, the cigarettes are starting to pay off. <laughs> and I was happy when I heard me sing uh, uh, Gone So Soon that I sounded like Louis Armstrong. And I thought, wow. It wasn't anything I tried to do. It's just that, you know, cigarettes take their fucking toll on your vocal cords. And... Uh, so, I mean, even you can tell by just talking to me that my voice is raspy and and uh, that's all from smoking. <laughs> Nothing that I wanted to do, you know, that I thought it wasn't a, a repercussion of something that I thought was going to happen. It never dawned on me that it would happen. But I'm happy that I sound that way. Well, it's funny because your voice definitely matches the, the sort of the tenor of the album and that sort of older wisdom and, you know... Someone who has experience, let's say. Well, I grew up in public, you know. I was 21 years old when I made my first record, and I didn't have a clue what I was doing. Not a clue. You know, I, I, I was a barroom singer. And uh, the idea of writing a song was, like, almost laughable. What? You want me to write songs? I'm a singer. So I had to learn how to write songs, and I wrote songs, and I grew up in public. So, I mean... Uh, and at first, I didn't like that idea, but now I'm happy it happened. I'm happy it happened. Because it, it gave me the opportunity to, 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 you know, to have the chip on my shoulder and to grow. And, you know, like I, I wrote a song, I don't know, a long time ago called Jack and Diane. And I always detested that song until the last couple, three years. I watched a football game. This last weekend, and 80,000 people were singing that song at halftime. Can you imagine? How about shit? I thought, how do all these fucking people know this song? But I mean, it, it's funny. Again, I guess being an artist, being hypercritical, you know, it's I can see where you are sort of dumbfounded by it, but at the same time, you know, obviously you're aware of this, the impact these songs have had in popular culture. And, you know, whether it's Jack and Diane or, you know, Pink Houses, Small Town. I mean, so it, it's interesting. But see, then. I, I, I don't. See, I, I, I don't because I'm not really part of the club. You know, I, I, live, I live a very solitude uh, life. I'm alone a lot whenever I can be. I'm alone on top of this mountain. Uh, so I don't really pay attention to popular culture. Like, you know, uh, I was talking to Springsteen, and he asked me if I watched the, the Grammys. I said, no, I didn't even know they were happening. He goes, well, we got nothing to do with it. I said, well, I figured that out. You know, we got nothing to do with that. You know, it's it's nothing, you know means nothing to me uh, at this point in my life. You know, if, I, if I'm not... So when you do, though, when you do see 80,000 people, and obviously you say you watched it at a football game, probably 70,000 of those 80,000 people were not even born when Jack and Diane came out, and you see 80,000 people, 70,000 of whom probably, you know, weren't born when it came out, I mean, how gratifying is that? Or is it just something that you almost like don't even pay attention to? No, it just surprised me. As you know, it just surprised me. It was, you know, and 
I asked a couple people, and I said, did you see ever fucking all these people singing Jack and Diane? The, the whole goddamn stadium was singing Jack and Diane. And somebody said to me, one of my friends said, John, Jack and Diane have turned into Frankie and Johnny for a generation. You know, Frankie and Johnny were lovers. You know, that, that song. I said, they are the Frankie and Johnny of this generation, of, of this 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 time period. And I, I, I was very flattered by that. To think that I could write a song when I was a kid. And not a, you know, if you think of the chorus of Jack and Diane, oh yeah, life goes on long after the thrill of living is gone. How the fuck did I know that when I was 20 some years old? Where did that come from? So I, I, I have to ask myself, you know, and I have to tell you, you know, when that song came out, the critics slayed it. You know, what a fucking terrible message to be sending to people. I remember the reviews, you know, just tell young people that, that the older you get, life gets hard. And, you know, uh, it's not as thrilling as when you're young. And, you know, I was lambasted for it. And I thought, I thought at the time, I thought, well, you're fucking wrong. You know, don't you see your grandfather? Don't you see your, your great grandfather? Don't you see your, you know, I see them. I mean, that, that song, that chorus was written when I drove up to my grandfather's house and I saw him sitting on the front porch, and I go, what the fuck are you doing? He goes, I'm waiting. And I go, for what? He goes, what do you think? And I thought, fuck. Freaking fascinating to me, because I'm a huge Springsteen fan, by the way, and I've also had this conversation with Jackson Brown talking about a song like These Days, which he wrote when he was fucking 16 years old, and it's like, you know, he says the same thing. But I remember seeing Bruce in 88 when he did Born to Run Acoustic and he talked about how much that song was him, but how much he didn't want that song to be him. So when you look at stuff now like Jack and Diane and you're like, or even songs like Minutes to Memories, where you mentioned that one. I mean, there's such a wisdom in that song of the story the old man is telling. So, I mean, are there moments then that you go back to? And why I mentioned Jackson is we talked about how songs can be prophetic. So are there moments in these songs then that you realize how much that was you and whether it was Bruce and it didn't want it, you to be, it, to be you or you realize that it, who you became later on, you know, like, are you surprised? Because again, also a lot of times too, songs become self-fulfilling prophecies. Yeah, that's true. I I absolutely I, I absolutely agree because I wrote a song. Uh, uh, Steve King and I uh, worked on a uh, on a musical together, and uh, I wrote a song, and it said, "Who you think, what you say about yourself is who you are." And when I wrote it, I really didn't know what the fuck that meant, but I do now. <laughs> What you believe about yourself is who you are. Listen, you're talking to the luckiest guy that you're ever going to talk to. I, I, I don't care how many interviews you've done. I don't care who the fuck you talk to. You're talking to the luckiest guy in the world. And luck is thinking you're lucky. And I've always thought that I was lucky. I may not have had a, a lot of talent when I first started out. Matter of fact, I... I hear songs of mine that on the radio sometimes I go, why did you even bother to continue? Because <laughs> it's just so terrible. But uh, people like them. I mean, you know, I'm referring to like her so good. It's like, why the fuck did anybody like that song? You know, because I wrote that song in a shower. You know, I, I just was singing in the shower and it's so good. Come on. It was like, it just kind of came from nowhere. I didn't want to write that song, but I was playing in bars, you know, and I saw how people behaved in bars and what they did to each other and what they did to each other when they thought nobody was around. And really, that's what that song's about. It was written in a very juvenile way. But really, that's what I thought I was trying to say is that, you know, what we do to each other in the dark 
you know, is who we are. Not the, not the face that we put on for people to see, you know. Yeah. Well, I also like the fact that you talk about luck because I feel like that's a, a good wrap-up note. I don't want to, you know, I could talk to you all day, but I don't want to take up too much of your time. But also because obviously the title track, you know, as someone who used to be a poker player, uh, a, I, I kind of love a that. A poker so, player? I can be good at poker. <laughs> I'm sure you, I'm not good. <laughs> I know you can beat me at poker, but I like that. Although... You'll appreciate the story. One time, Lincoln Parker, good friends of mine, were doing a tournament, and they were. It was a charity tournament for their music for relief. Very long story short, I suck at poker. I hadn't really played since high school, but because I was friends with the band, they invited me as the one journalist to play. Out of two thousand people, I came in eleventh place by continually just going all in, thinking I was going to lose, and just pulling the cards every time. And in fact, I even pissed off professional poker players because they're like, "Oh, you think that's funny?" I'm like, "Dude, I'm trying to lose." So, you know, everybody gets the luck of the card sometimes, too. But I think you probably could beat me. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, you know, you're in a rock band and there's a lot of nights and uh, that you have days off. And, you know, particularly in the 80s and 90s. Now, uh, I can't even get people to play poker with me. You know why? Why? Cheat. <laughs> All right, wait, I've never asked this question before, so I like this as a wrap-up note. Who's your dream five poker player? Like, who's your, you're sitting around the table playing poker with five people from any time in history. Who's the dream five? And, of course, it has as much to do with who you just want to hang out with. So who would be your dream poker fivesome? Uh, I would like to play with, uh, uh, even though he's dead, I would like to play with Arthur Miller. I would like to play with uh, John Houston. That's who I really want to play is John Houston. Uh, and uh, I'd like to play with uh, uh, with uh, uh, Marlon Brando and James Cagney. And I'd like to play with Bob Dylan. All right, I've got to ask before we wrap up, since you say specifically you really want to play with John Houston, what is it about John Houston? I love John Houston. You know, he's he's more of an inspiration to me than any singer-songwriter. That may be Dylan, you know, and Guthrie. But John Houston is like, this fucking guy was married five times. You know, and he died in Mexico. He, he, he lived the life, man, and he just lived. And, you know, he was a gambler. He was a womanizer. He was... You know, all the things that John Mellencamp, as a young person, thought he would grow up to be, but didn't. John Houston was a fucking, you know, was a free man. That's the way I look at it. He lived the way that he wanted to live. He didn't play by any rules. Because like I said earlier, you know, there's a club and we ain't in it. You and me. Me and you are not in it. And it's the same club they use every fucking day to beat us over the head. So fuck them. All right, dude. And, like I said, I can keep they, asking you questions. They, and, they're, and they're called corporate America. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... All right. You know, I got to sneak this in. One John Houston film that you could live in, what would it be and why? That's easy. The Misfits. You want to have a good time tonight? Or a night when you don't have anything to do? Watch The Misfits. And watch it with... And listen to the dialogue. You'll learn more about life than, than you could ever think about. Clark Gable is so fucking good in that movie. Uh, Montgomery Cliff is so fucking good. Monroe is so good. Uh, Eli Wallach, so the whole fucking thing, and it's so well written. It's just so fucking well written about life and what freedom is, and what you know. There's a line in the movie, and <clears throat> Monroe and Clark Gable goes, well, "Well, let's go out here to the edge of town and 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 go to the desert." And she goes, "Well, I've been there. Uh, it doesn't look like much out there." He goes, 
Clark Gable gets a look on his face and he goes, what do you mean? Everything's there. And she goes, like what? He goes, you can just live. She goes, what does that mean? He goes, you get up when you want to. You go to bed when you want to. You eat. You whistle. You throw rocks up. You throw rocks at a can. I mean, it's so beautifully written. If you like literature, you'll love The Misfits. All right, dude, I got to go back and check it out because it's funny. I, my favorite John Huston film has always actually been going back to literature. I loved his adaption of The Dead. I think that last five minutes is as beautiful as anything you'll ever see on I, And you know what? I can't hardly argue with that. It's fucking good. Everything that guy touched was good. Except the thing that he did with, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, he, did a, he did a thing with Orson Welles, which was like, what, what are you guys doing? What the fuck are you guys doing? I, I didn't get it. But anyway, that was just me. Uh, his Wikipedia page, was it The Stranger? Uh, it was the last thing that, that Wells made. And it was it was the only time that Wells... Oh, The Other Side of the Wind. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. That's it, The Other Side of the Wind. I love that title, though. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> All right, cool. Is there anything that you want to add I did not ask you about because... You've been amazingly generous with your time and absolute blast. Oh, good. Uh, no, I, I, I think you've done a thorough job of covering, you know. And I'm, I'm really happy that you like the record. It makes me happy when people go, hey, I love your new record. Oh, dude, it's a beautiful work. But it, it's, I, I love it, like I said, on multiple levels. I also do like how challenging it is. I, again, it's not an easy record, but I appreciate that because it feels so honest and authentic. Well, I'm not for everyone anymore. I'm not for everyone. You know, I was I was someplace the other night, and uh, some guy came up to me, and he said, you know, uh, music's just not the same. And, uh, and, I, and he said, you know, uh, it's just not the same, and, and there's not any good songwriters anymore. And I went, whoa, 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 whoa. I go, wait a minute. Have you heard my last record? He goes, no. Yeah, I go, have you heard Bruce's last record? He goes, no. I go, have you heard Dylan's last record? He went, no. I go, have you heard Woody Guthrie's last record? He said, no. I said, maybe there's still music out there. You're just not listening. There's the problem. You're not listening. It's still being made. It's still out there. But you're just not listening. You grew up. Too bad for you. Yep, I get it. What? Well, well the, 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 the business has changed so dramatically that I don't even know what the fuck it is anymore. Well, that's a whole... So, you know, and it's funny because like you say, I mean, you know, like no one makes albums anymore. I mean, you know, but again... For those of us who are old school enough to listen to it start to finish, I mean, part of the joy of this, like I said, is that one, two, three punch in the middle is just track six, seven, and eight. Dude, I, I love the combo of that. And that's part of the joy is listening to things all the way through and appreciating a whole story. But, you know, there's, there's not many of us left who know how to do that. And, and, and you're correct. And I appreciate guys like you because uh, that's what we... You know, these records we make now are just postcards. And it's nice when somebody reads the postcard. Cool. On that note, dude, thank you. Such a pleasure. Okay, well, listen, it was fun talking. Definitely was. I look forward to the next one. Thanks, man. All right, buddy. I'm glad you liked the record. Thanks. Have a good one. Bye. Hey, this is Steve Balton. You have been listening to My Turning Point with special guest John Mellencamp. Thanks. Kick off summer saving season with huge appliance deals now at the Bray and Scarf Memorial Day Sale. Their factory trained appliance experts are ready to answer all your questions and offer the absolute lowest prices with their best price guarantee. Save on all in-stock Whirlpool and Maytag washer and dryer pairs. 
Plus, get a $100 installation rebate on select KitchenAid dishwashers. Shop local at the area's number one independent appliance retailer, Bray & Scarf, where it doesn't cost more to get more. Sometimes you need to take control to make a difference. That's why with FlexPath from Capella University, you're in control. Set your own deadlines and leverage your experience to move at a pace that works for you. Discover a different way forward at capella.edu. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.